first half of 1982 sees the St. Louis Cardinals jockeying in a crowded National League East. The Montreal Expos, Pittsburgh Pirates, and the Philadelphia Phillies had all enjoyed various forms of success in the last three years. The Expos made their first postseason berth in 81, the Pirates won a World Series in 79, and the Phillies came off an inspiring title run in 1980. Those same Phillies had been nothing but a thorn in the side of the Cardinals, who in years prior treated them as the league pisspot for players they didn't want. While Gussie Bush's Redbirds languished through the 70s in mediocrity, those basement-dwelling Phillies mounted an ascent to the top of the NL East Mountain. By the start of 1982, the Cardinals had nothing to show among their peers and the Phils were looking down at them. They had removed the Cardinals entirely from the postseason equation in the decade prior, and just like Whitey Herzog's Royals, endured some heartache when they also lost three straight league championship series. But following their first winning season in seven years in 1975, the Phillies owned the Cardinals with a 66-55 record, a mark that had kept them in front of the Birds for the past eight years. The Phillies had a secret weapon through all this, the Cardinals' kryptonite. Whitey Herzog knew that if the Cardinals were going to retake the NL East, this team would not only need a hot start, but also a cold one from the rest of the division, especially the Phillies. As the team broke camp and plotted into the Astrodome, he found they were already beat up with ailments that wouldn't heal until later that year. The running Redbirds would more or less become the Cardiac Cardinals, as they'll spend the first four months riding tremendous highs and lows. They'll also show themselves to be incredibly human and weird in a sport that tries to suppress that element. Presented with a tall task that they seek to repeat from last year and bolstered by fresh newcomers, a mentally rejuvenated St. Louis squad set their sights for the divisional crown and began their march. It's April 14, 1982, and the St. Louis Cardinals are playing the rival Chicago Cubs. Both teams have been uncompetitive in recent memory. The Cubs haven't had a winning record in 10 years and a postseason berth in 37. The Cardinals, meanwhile, spent the entire 1970s somewhere between good and not very good, never finishing higher than second place in the newly formed National League East, a feat they accomplished three times. As baseball clubs, the Cardinals have enjoyed the most success, but as rivals, the Cubs have flourished, holding a 53-game advantage in the all-time win-loss column. Prior to 82, the Cubbies had no problem picking on their feathered brothers, going 107-100 and 100 against them since 1970. Chicago hadn't played a lot of purposeful games in recent memories, but they made sure to pack their lunch and save their best when the Cardinals came to town. This is the first game of a new year for two teams looking to play some meaningful baseball. St. Louis had the best record in the NL East last season, while Chicago finished an abysmal 38-65, but over the offseason, had made some trades to acquire guys like Ryan Sandberg and Leon Durham, and were developing an all-time closer in Lee Smith. The Cubs had a window that was starting to open, but that was a couple years away, compared to the Cardinals, whose window was open right now. Whitey Herzog spent two years as general manager using whatever Konami code he could think of to get the team he wanted. Their time was beyond now. It was last year. But the 81 strike and Bowie Coon split season robbed the Cardinals of playing October baseball. Instead, they watched as the Dodgers and their cartoon Italian manager won the World Series. It must have soured their fucking grapes. The Redbirds knew they would have to get off to a hot start to be a serious contenders in the NLEs, 
Prior to the season, sports reporters thought of them as a, yeah, maybe if things go perfectly right kind of candidate. Great defense and speed, not a lot of power. The most fearsome slugger on the 82 squad was a battered 32-year-old George Hendrick. And while Silent George would end his career with a very respectable 267 home runs, he wasn't exactly the kind of power threat that made pitchers shake in their stirrups. Most experts had them finishing second or third behind the mighty Expos, who arguably had three George Hendrickses and Al Oliver, Gary Carter, and Andre Dawson, with a fourth to break out and Tim Wallach. And while the Phillies lacked some of the pop that got them to the World Series in 1980, they still had Mike Schmidt and a certain player who has tormented the Redbirds for the last decade. The Cardinals opened their season giving Nolan Ryan his worst opening day start of his career with a 14-3 thrashing of the Astros. They then dropped three straight before winning the final two games of their series against the Pittsburgh Pirates, where they now find themselves here. In Chicago, on a crisp 45-degree day, with the wind blowing out about five miles an hour, there are less than 7,000 people here for a day game that began around 137. A couple hours later, the score stands 3-2 to two with the cards in front. Future Cy Young and MVP winner Willie Hernandez is in the pitch for the Cubs in the top of the ninth. And while it's not an easy road ahead, he has the bottom of the order to face, including pitcher Joaquin Andujar, who hasn't been removed from the on-deck circle. With his team bringing up the heart of the order in the bottom of the knife, Willie just needs three measly outs against two subpar hitters. The first batter he faces is a scrawny kid from Watts, measuring no taller than 5'10 and barely weighing 150 pounds. This guy is an auto-out, a guarantee at this point in his career, which has so far spanned four years and over 2,500 plate appearances and with a paltry 573 OPS, the worst among everyone with that many cracks at the dish since 1978. He has never hit higher than 258 in a season, which he did his rookie year. Every year after has been a new venture and a futility. This guy has one career home run. One! And that sad little lonely dinger came also in his debut season, a span of over 1,700 at-bats and counting at this point. He is a mark, the easiest out beside the pitcher who he can barely out-hit. He hit 139 in spring training. Why is he here to begin with? I get it. He's 2-for-3 at this point in the game, but both hits were singles because that's all he is, a singles hitter. The worst this runt can do is make it to first, which he already has a barely 1-in-5 chance of happening. And if he makes it there, so what? A team as soft-hitting like this Cardinals one would need two or three more singles to bring him in. That's plenty of time and opportunity to find three outs in a lineup full of mosquitoes. Plenty of chances to get this game to the bottom of the ninth where Bill Buckner, Leon Durham, and Jerry Morales can get something started to tie this game up and continue a Cubs tradition of kicking the Cardinals when they're down. And sure, he's a defensive wizard in the field. He's made some stellar plays, okay, including one against Jeff Burroughs while he was in San Diego. That was super cool. But defense won't do shit for him now. It's just Willie Hernandez and the stringy black kid from Los Angeles County who never really considered baseball as a career until he walked on to his college varsity team. All that needs to be done is throw a first-pitch fastball down the plate and let him... It is now 4-2, Cardinals. This quick-footed shortstop with soft lightning hands has just parked a bomb to deep left field. 
His Cardinal teammates are taken aback by it. I'm sure Willie Hernandez is surprised by it. I mean, it was a no-doubter. It says right here on the scorecard, deep left field. This string being of a shortstop said as soon as he hit it, he just started running as hard as he could. That he didn't hit enough home runs in his life to know if they were gone off the bat or not. He would later admit he was startled by it because he spent the entire offseason working with hitting coach Dave Ricketts on hitting the top of the ball and using his speed to get on base. He had a running game with Whitey that he'd get a dollar every time he put one on the ground. His ninth inning blast off of future MVP would prove to be the game winner as the Cubs strung together one run in the bottom of the knife, but not enough to get past Bruce Suter in his split-fingered fastball. It's such a shocking home run that national reporters are calling the Wrigley Field press box to ask if someone else hit it. Their best guess being the freshly acquired pigeon toad Lonnie Smith, but they're told nope, it's the other guy named Smith, Ozzy. Ten days later, he does it again, this time against a 3-9 and nine Philly squad and in a game the Cardinals put away in inning before. Two home runs and 30 at-bats, a clip that would place him among peers like Dave Kingman and Mike Schmidt. He'll do something similar next year when he'll whack two bombs in the course of four games. He never wanted to hit tanks. He simply wasn't built to do that. If you do a cursory search of Ozzie Smith, you'll find one video of his 29 career home runs. Everything else is defensive majesty. He grew up in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles, a predominantly black community then as it is now. Like so many communities in South or East Los Angeles, Watts was heavily segregated from the rest of L.A. Under blockbusting laws and private covenants, African Americans had little choice in their freedom of movement. Instead, that was restricted. A similar practice that is still carried out today, but quieter. Ozzie vividly recalls the 1965 riots, where he and his five brothers and sisters had to lie on the floor from all the gunfire that occurred throughout the night. Ozzie's parents were working class. His father was a delivery truck driver, and his mother a staffer at an Armenian nursing home. Even after they split up, they always put their kids first. And Ozzie did the most with what his parents provided for him. Kind of a thing with Ozzie. Doing a lot with a little. He was undersized compared to other athletes. Most scouts overlooked him for this reason. And the Ozzie Smith, who'd go on to win 13 gold gloves, almost never happened when he was offered a basketball scholarship at Washington State. But he didn't want to be a cougar and wanted to stay a little closer to home, so he took a partial academic scholarship to Cal Poly Tech. It wasn't his intention to pursue baseball, but one day he showed up and Coach Bertie Haar wanted to see what he had. He liked Ozzy so much, he let him walk on the varsity team. And after Cal Poly's starting shortstop went down with a broken leg, Ozzy took over. His key was all in his reflexes. When he was a kid, he'd throw a ball off a wall, any wall really, and react to it getting closer with each throw. He didn't pay for private lessons or join a travel team. He was just some poor kid with some time. He did this throughout his youth, but never impressed with his hitting abilities. While in college, he learned to switch hit to try to up his value as a player. And in 1976, the Detroit Tigers got just enough of Ozzy to draft him in the seventh round. But he found their $4,500 signing bonus lacking. When the Tigers refused to give him $5,000, he went back to school. The following year, he was taken in the fourth round by the San Diego Padres and would begin a whirlwind of affairs that would lead to their messy breakup. Ozzy always knew what he was worth, better than anyone else. The San Diego Padres may not have understood that, or maybe they did 
and didn't care. They offered Ozzy $3,500 against his $10,000 ask, and after some back and forth, he finally caved, saying he just wanted to play baseball, and the two sides agreed to $5,000. He bought a red Chrysler LeBaron and headed to the Northwest League to play for the Walla Walla Padres. After mashing 303 and leading the league in stolen bases that year, he got a non-roster invite to spring training, where he impressed just enough to earn the starting shortstop spot on the 1978 team. Ozzy's hitting is going to regress while in San Diego. There are a lot of things wrong with the Padres. That first season, Ozzy had two managers, Alvin Dark and Roger Craig. Dark had taken a particular interest in Ozzy and worked with him personally throughout the spring, but he got shit-canned before the season started. The first season, the Padres were respectable 84-78, and but the following year, they won 68 games, and Craig was dumped where he'd later go on to manage the Giants and win the 89 pennant. In 1980, the Padres thought the best guy to replace Roger Craig should be Jerry Coleman. You may not know this, but you're gonna. Jerry Coleman has no experience managing a baseball team. What he does have is eight years of providing play-by-play commentary for the Padres. So San Diego brought in that guy, who, while very supportive of Ozzy, saying things like he was in the same class as Pee Wee Reese or Luis Aparicio. He wasn't cut out for the managing craft and was dumped after a 74-88 and season. The next guy they bring in is Frank Howard, who guides the Padres to a dead last finish in 1981 and has shown the door. It wasn't just managers that highlighted a Padres organization that seemed determined to light everything they touched on fire. It was players too. Players of all kinds especially young ones. The Padres had a lot of high draft picks that didn't turn out well. The first rounder taken in Ozzy's class was Brian Greer, who hit 188 in the Northwest League Ozzy was rigging in. Greer would make it to the show and get four total at-bats, more than most of the Padres' draft picks. Bill Allman was the number one pick in 1974, and Ozzy just took his job. The most successful first rounder the Padres took was Hall of Famer Dave Winfield, the 1973 draft, but that becomes a whole nother can of worms. To start, Winfield endures a messy divorce from the Padres. Ozzy pointed out that what the organization lacked more than anything was a sense of culture. They didn't understand winning because they didn't have any guys who won. They didn't have any guys who won because they refused to develop those guys. In Winfield's case, they just let him walk and sign what was then the largest contract in baseball history with the Yankees. And it's not like Winfield didn't want to stay. He had a foundation rooted in San Diego and was named their team captain. He was a Gold Glove winner and an eight-year veteran. And all he asked for, with his best year still ahead of him, was 10 years and $13 million. The equivalent of a player today seeking $43 million. How do you fuck this up? Well, if your team president, Ballard Smith, you launch a press campaign to besmirch your organization's first great player. It was a messy one. Ballard repeatedly told the press the numbers that the Padres had a team payroll of $3.7 million, already a million more than the previous year, and that it didn't make a whole lot of sense to put all that money into one player, even though Dave Winfield and his agent Al Fromman suggested that Dave's salary wouldn't increase past $1 million if the Padres didn't sell more tickets than they did the last year. The Padres did everything to undermine his value. They said that if Winfield was really as good as he claimed to be, 
the team wouldn't be 16 games under 500, and that Dave Winfield isn't a team player. And they did this the entire season to their best player. It eventually becomes too much for Dave to keep quiet about. And he calls an emotional press conference where he finally lets them have it. I feel that their strategy during the 1980 season was to humiliate, humble, and degrade my personal performance in effect to impair my value, he said. When he reached for comment, Ballard Smith had this to say. Dave feels this season did not hurt his value. I disagree. If he hit 330, he'd be entitled to more. Obviously, for the season he had, no one's going to pay him $1.3 million a year. That's very true, Ballard. Cool name, by the way. Someone is actually going to pay Dave Winfield over $2 million for he eventually hit 340 for them. In the end, Dave Winfield plays in a World Series before the Padres do. He also gets his bag, and Ozzie Smith is watching all this and taking it in. He tells Bob Rain that the Winfield handling meant he was next, and that if owner Jack Kroc and Ballard Smith won't shell out superstar dollars for a legit superstar, they wouldn't move an inch for someone like him. Ozzie doesn't see the fire, but can smell the smoke and he begins looking for the exit door. His biggest goal is to hit 300, not win MVP or a silver slugger. It's to hit 300, not an insurmountable feat, and something that every hitter could do for his era. He never had any formal training, but he knew he was skilled defensively. The revolving door that is San Diego gave him no mentor. He disliked his hitting coach, Bill Herman, so much he sought out help from an off-duty cop in Bill Allen, and, uh... A hypnotist named Lee Fisher? Really? A fucking hypnotist? What, he just dangles a clock in front of your face and snaps his fingers and suddenly you're a 300 hitter? What's that? Lee Fisher's methods are credited by the Orange Coast College for winning four straight state titles? The same Lee Fisher that Mariners Dan Meyer and Reds Dave Collins credit for turning around their careers at the plate? A guy who gave lectures titled Hypnosis in Sports across the West Coast. That guy was helping Ozzie Smith become a better hitter you know there's goofier shit out there we guess ozzy struggled mightily his sophomore season after putting up a respectable 258 average and 40 stolen bases and a rookie of the year runner-up performance he began 1979 hitless in his first 32 at bats and well didn't climb over the mendoza line until early august he finished the year hitting 211 in 1980, he improved to 230 and even walked 71 times en route to a 57 stolen base campaign. But his batting lessons with Allen would end that offseason after he cut off contact with every player he worked with. And in March 1981, Bill Allen shot himself at home with his wife. Jesus, Tom, heavy as hell over here. It's a death that stung Ozzy. He'd tell Bob Rains that there was a lot of conjecture as to, you know, why Bill did what he did. One of it being the Padres passing him up for a coaching job, but he said it was the stress of years of him being a cop. He doesn't speak much about it after that. Losing someone who showed him more appreciation for his talents than any other instructor was, well, it made him feel more isolated and alone within the organization. Sure, he had his family, he had his wife Denise, whom he met after a game in Houston, but what Ozzy wanted more than the Padres was something more universal. A sense of security and appreciation. <sighs> Jerry Coleman was a cornball, sure. But he was correct in pointing out how much Ozzy was loved by his teammates and fans. If only the Padres could see things that way. His last two years in San Diego would be a repeat of what Dave Winfield endured, 
and it would serve as a condemnation of how an organization could treat their players for the time. Ozzy's saga goes as such. Him and his agent, Ed Gottlieb, who ran a real estate agency on the side, pointed out that the Wizard was one of the lowest paid shortstops in the MLB at $80,000 a year. Whether this part is true or not is up to you, but Ozzy and Ed believed that the Padres were discriminating against him, and their mutual distrust from one another ran so deep that Gottlieb began recording negotiations. Ed was a bit of a showman, and Ozzy was more or less just along for the ride. He told the public that Ozzy might participate in a Tour de France, whose top earners pulled in over $100,000. Perhaps most infamously during these extension talks, Ed took out a classified ad in the San Diego Union Tribune that read, Jobs wanted. Padres baseball player wants part-time employment to supplement income. College education, willing to work, prefer PR-type employment. Needs hours tailored to baseball schedule, but would quit baseball for right opportunity. It's a move that Ozzy didn't appreciate, but what really set him off was the response from the owner, Jack Kroc's wife, Joan, who said that Ozzy could come work as an assistant to her gardener, and that they'd pay him a very respectable $4.50 per hour. Fucking bitch. <laughs> Can we keep that in? <laughs> yeah, I was in Ozzy's eyes, this was all he needed to know about the people who signed this meager paycheck. Even after getting his pay raise to a still below league average $300,000, he was almost certain he'd be getting the hell out of San Diego. The following year, the Padres approached him and asked him what it would take to keep him happy in San Diego. Ozzy swears he wasn't being facetious when he told them this, but he wanted a lifetime contract. He figured he'd play 10 more years, give or take, and would work in some capacity as a coach or front office personnel for the Padres after his playing days. He asked for a 25-year contract at $1 million per year. You can take whoever's word for it, but the Padres, with their history of shitting on budding generational talent, couldn't help themselves. Ozzy's contract offer was leaked to the San Diego press along with a statement from none other than Ballard Smith. In the offseason, Ozzy raised his demand to $750,000 and threatened to go to arbitration. The Padres responded by threatening to reduce his salary by, well, 20%. Around this time, Whitey swings the trade to send Gary Templeton to the Friars and bring the Wizard to St. Louis. But Ozzy's no-trade clause throws a wrench in the works. He wasn't sure about St. Louis at first, but his priority was making the Padres pay for how they treated him. He wouldn't approve the trade unless the Padres bought out his no-trade clause. As we know from Part 2, the trade almost didn't work out. The Padres even came to Ozzy with a six-year contract starting at three hundred and seventy-five k a year, with 50000 in an annual increase. He rejected it, and the Padres smeared him in the media, going so far as to lie about the contract terms. Ozzy eventually approves the trade. The Cardinals weren't willing to pay him the seven hundred and fifty k he was seeking, but the personal letter from Whitey saying they'd let him go to arbitration if he wanted to is what ultimately sealed the deal for the Wizard. He, for the first time in his major league career, felt wanted. Perhaps as one last cheap shot on the way out, Ozzy asked the Padres front office for a personal letter saying he was a better shortstop than Gary Templeton. A letter in no way that could hurt the Friars, but instead be used in arbitration hearing against the Cardinals. The Padres agreed and then refused to give the letter to Ozzy until mid-February. Ozzy didn't win the hearing, but to hear him say it, we got the cake, we just didn't get the topping. Despite the atrocious spring training that surely had some heads tilted in concern, the wizard had finally come someplace he could call home. Ozzy Smith's early home run spree is part of a lot of things going right for the Cardinals. If it wasn't for their incredible depth, they'd be in a worse position than they are. 
This team is beat up and is going to remain beat up. Both Ken Obrickfell and Gene Tennis were nursing broken thumbs they received in spring training. Daryl Porter had a sore elbow thanks to a Pete Falcone fastball. And Bruce Suter was reported to be pitching with a dead arm, something he would continue throwing with throughout the first half of the season. 34-year-old non-roster invite Steve Braun, who hadn't played a full professional season since 1978, was now the team's temporary starting third baseman. And longtime minor league catcher Glenn Brummer, who was hitting 107 in Louisville, would be penciled in as the primary backup. It shouldn't be a surprise that after thumping Nolan Ryan, they might stumble out the gate, which they did, dropping their next three games. But after back-to-back wins against the Pittsburgh Pirates to even themselves at 500, the running Redbirds would climb over that mark and never look back. Beginning with those Pirates, the Cardinals would begin a 12-game romp that saw an offense that was ranked first and second in runs scored the last two years, slug their way to an 821 OPS, an incredible feat by 1980 standards. Their 302 team batting average led all of MLB, and even if you throw in their first four games of the season, they were the cream of the crop in batting average, OPS, and runs scored. Their 26 stolen bases were only bested by Billy Martin's athletics, who were playing a certain Ricky Henderson en route to his record-breaking mark for stolen bases in a single year. The most impressive performers during the streak were Lonnie Smith and Keith Hernandez, the former swiping seven bags and scoring 11 runs to go along with a 1.001 OPS, and the latter drawing 14 walks and posting a 9.46 OPS. Even the soft-hitting Wizard was posting a 3.23 average early in the year. It's kind of amazing what they did, and it was only the second most impressive thing to happen in MLB during April. The Atlanta Braves bested the Redbirds by a game, winning their first 13 games of 1982. The Cardinals' offense was still mostly intact, although they would be held together by duct tape when June rolled around. Their rotation was bolstered by youngsters, Andy Rincon and John Martin, both of whom impressed Whitey in the previous season. Longtime mainstay Bob Forsch was the opening day starter, and later this season he would get his 100th career win. The other piece of the Ozzie smith Garrett templeton trade, Steve Murrow, was here, and a very fiery, albeit reluctant, Joaquin Andujar shored up a pitching staff that didn't lack for personality, particularly from their Dominican fireballer, who pitched so well last season that not only did Whitey have no choice but to take him back in the free agent draft, but also put him into his rotation, a move he is not going to regret one bit this season. Despite having only one established starter, two rookies, a guy who led the NL in losses last season, and Joaquin Andujar, who feuded with the Astros so much they ignored his talent in exchange for Tony Scott, the pitching core was nothing short of amazing during this stretch, posting a 2.62 ERA. Aside from Suter, Cardinal relievers consisted of an ailing Mark Littell, who would retire later this year. Doug Bear, who was once a prominent closer with the Reds but has since seen his abilities crater, a 43-year-old Jim Cott, and 22-year-old youngster Dave LaPointe, who prior to this season had only 25 and two-thirds innings in his big league career. It's the third-best streak in Cardinals history, topped by only the 1935 Gashouse Gang and the 2019 squad. Their historic run has propelled them to first place in the NL East, a position they're going to maintain sole control over the next 70 days. Whitey would say later the games you win in April and May are the games you don't have to win in September. The streak ends when an old friend returns, winning the first of five starts he'd make against his former team. Up next, a pitcher is worth a thousand words. An extremely rare interview with future Hall of Famer and career nonconformist Steve Carlton. Up close. If you asked Steve Carlton, he would have hung around for less money. 
Being Divine called him just a little past 8 in the morning to tell him he'd been traded to the last place Philadelphia Phillies, a team that the Cardinals had made a habit of dumping problematic players to. 20 minutes after getting the message he'd been traded, Carlton called Divine back just to ask, Hey, what would it take for him to remain in St. Louis? Going so far as to bring up the $6,000 salary dispute he had with owner Gussie Bush. Divine said there was nothing he could do, and the 26-year-old Carlton would be going east for 25-year-old Rick Wise. Rick Wise was also locked in a contract dispute with the Phillies. He had endured a string of hard luck seasons and in 1971 posted a 17-14 record with a sub-3 ERA. Wise was considered untouchable by the Phillies' front office, but GM John Quinn changed his stance after Wise asked that his salary be doubled to $64,000. Wise had a 75-76 and 76 mark during his seven seasons with the Phillies, a record used against him in salary negotiations, prompting him to say, It's tough to be a consistent winner with a loser. Carlton harbored similar resentment, although less publicly than Wise. Two years prior, Kurt Flood held out for $100,000 and was joined by the entire Cardinals pitching staff, Carlton included. Steve's holdout didn't garner the same attention as Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, or Flood's did, but would remain stuck in Gussie Bush's mind. Following the 69 season, Flood was sent packing to the Phillies for Dick Allen, along with fellow holdouts and Joe Horner and Tim McCarver. He was due for a big payday, but the Cardinals had a policy on not committing big bucks to pitchers unless they won 20 games. Team Vice President Stan Musial, the first Cardinal to be offered a six-figure deal, had Gussie's back on the matter, feeling that only Bob Gibson deserved a pay increase. During this time, Richard Nixon had appointed the Pay Board and Price Commission, a 22-person economic council who worked on wage and price freezes, all in an effort to combat the nation's growing inflation and unemployment problem. A 90-day wage freeze was set in place, recommending a maximum 5.5 increase in wages. Now, not every industry had to specifically adhere to this policy, but baseball owners went ahead and adopted it anyway. Both Devine and Bush set a 5.5% increase to total payroll, meaning players could get a big payday, but that pie would get smaller for everyone else. Marvin Miller, the hero from our previous episode, smelled a rat with this tactic, but at this time the MLBPA lacked the leverage to do anything about it. The Cardinals faced little contract holdouts this time around, except from Steve Carlton, Lou Brock, and newcomer Dick Allen. Allen had been racially targeted his entire career by the Philadelphia faithful in the press. He too was locked in a contract dispute, and when he came to the Cardinals, he hired lawyer John Tuoy, to handle all his negotiations. Allen was gunning for $150,000 and Carlton $50,000. Brock signed before spring training for reported eighty dollars to $85,000. As March approached, the two players offered mild concessions with Carlton lowering his demand to $40,000 and Allen to as low as one hundred twenty-five. dollars I guess Gussie Bush ran out of patience. He lost his shit in the end. He and Devine refused to go higher than $30,000 with Carlton and wouldn't even entertain six figures with Allen, with Bush saying to the Post-Dispatch, We will not negotiate further. We've made up our minds that the offer we made to Allen is the one we're going to stick by. I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Instead of a sport, this is now a real headache. I can't understand Allen. I can't understand Kurt Flood. We have to take a stand for the good of baseball. When asked about Carlton, Gussie couldn't hold his tongue and lashed out, I don't care if he ever pitches a ball for us again. 
Allen side the day after for about 85000 but Lefty still held out. Bush and Carlton would never talk again, at least as far as contract talks go. With the threat of the renewal clause in their back pocket, a mediator was summoned to help resolve Carlton the Redbirds' dispute. Eventually, a deal is reached, and Carlton walks away with a two-year, $80,000 contract. The money isn't unheard of, but the years is what catches everyone's eye. The last player to receive a multi-year contract was Ken Boyer 10 years ago. In year one of his contract, Carlton flopped to a 10-19 and record. Detractors said he wasn't in the best of shape, but Steve worked out at SLU during his holdout. In fact, Steve always did everything his way when it came to his body. He was known for his rigorous weight training regimes. He did yoga and hated running sprints. He hated running in general, and instead of that, would stick his hand in a barrel of brown rice and rotate his hands. He did handstands minutes at a time, a practice he took with him to Philadelphia that he passed along to Jim Nash while he was recovering from a shoulder injury. Let's get this out of the way now. Steve Carlton is a fucking weird guy. He is anything but a prototypical baseball player. His idiosyncrasies will become more public after his success in Philadelphia and the interviews he'll give after his career is over so he can keep the lights on. Steve Carlton was an avid reader and remains very spiritual to this day. Among his interests were numerous texts on Eastern philosophy and martial arts. While not specific, Carlton identified himself as a Taoist and was a huge fan of Paramahansa Yoganda. The barrel of rice story has a funny detail to it. Carlton would twist his wrist 49 times with his hand submerged in rice, each time for the 49 years that Chinese martial artist Quang Gun lived. Steve Carlton doesn't celebrate much of anything. He doesn't celebrate Cy Young's, anniversaries, or birthdays. He barely keeps up with those as it is. He doesn't wear a wristwatch and, in his later years, won't watch TV. In 1994, Pat Jordan wrote about a little kid wishing him happy birthday and how Carlton just stared at them, befuddled, and then said flatly, I don't celebrate birthdays. Just, just an awesome guy. Lefty is also going to share some opinions on the Clintons, Rush Limbaugh's, and the Jews. Quite a lot of things about the Jews, but we'll get to that some other time. Right now, in the worst fan's time machine, we're sitting with him as he learns he's been traded to the Phillies, something he took personally. As Carlton put it, getting traded was a lot like wearing a scarlet letter, and that teams traded players then because there was usually something wrong with them, mentally, physically, or they were just a pain in the ass. The Cardinals dumped star players to the Phillies just a couple of years prior, and here they were dumping Carlton. He had bounced back from a 10-19 season to become the league's second 20-game winner in 1971. 20 games, meaning it was time to cash in. When he approached the Cards about a pay raise, they were there, as he would later say, about $6,000 apart. They were further apart at the start of negotiations, with Carlton initially looking for seventy-five grand, which he later amended to sixty-five. The Cardinals weren't going higher than 57500 even after Stevie lowered his demands. It didn't matter. Gussie Bush was taking a stand against rising salary costs. Someone had to be the greedy asshole in all this and show these selfish ball players who's boss. About two months later, he'd trade another big left-hander in Jerry Roos because he was also wanting a pay raise. Roos would go on to win 220 games in his career and Carlton 329. The 1970s are likely a lot different over some money. In late February, Steve got the call. It was so sudden, 
Usually a holdout goes in spring training where a team can force a player to report and dock their salary up to 20%. Carlton didn't get that, although the Cardinals made it easier for him as it was rumored they traded him to the Phillies because their spring training complex was basically right next door to theirs. Carlton gets his bag with the Phillies and Weiss gets his with the Cardinals. 1972 starts and Carlton sets a goal for himself that he becomes enamored with. Win 25 games. He becomes so obsessed with it, he writes 25 in shaving cream every morning. In the years to come, Carlton's mental focus and dedication would become stuff of legends. The Phillies would construct a $15,000 soundless mood behavior room for him, where he'd sit and repeat to himself over and over again, I am courageous, calm, confident, and relaxed. I can control my destiny. When I went out to pitch a game, I had uh, I had that locked in my mind. I had you know my pregame rituals were you know to to sit down and play the game out in my mind mm -hmm. prior to actually physically playing the game, and uh, it worked uh, extremely well for me. I knew that when I went out there, I was going to win because I had already done this. Carlton's 1972 season is arguably the best in modern baseball history. His longtime catcher and confidant, Tim McCarver, said he was throwing a different fastball. He made the move in that spring. Lefty threw a different fastball. There was vengeance in that fastball. <laughs> I don't carry a grudge. Yes, you do. Remember the year I beat these guys six times? Lefty compiled a 27-10 record, pitching 346 innings, striking out 310 batters, and ending the season with a 1.97 ERA. He won 46% of the last place Phillies games, despite only receiving 3.83 runs in support on days he started. It's not that Carlton was untouchable, but that he was a man possessed to reach greatness. He swore for that entire season he never threw a pitch over the heart of the plate, and it's hard to argue against that with these numbers. He racked up 10.2 B-War during the season, only topped by Doc Gooden's 10.3 a decade later. And frankly... I'm more impressed with Carlton sees than the Docs. But it's what he did to the Cardinals that's most impressive and would set the tone for what he did to this franchise year after year after year. After starting the season 5-6 and six through May, Carlton would go on a 22-4 and four romp. On September 20th, Carlton won his 25th game of the season in a 2-1 complete game victory over, you guessed it, the St. Louis Cardinals, who pitched Rick Weiss that day. Weiss was having a fine season, but has set at the time the record for most one-run decisions by a starter with 17. Those 72 Cardinals won only five of those, with the 17th loss coming against Carlton, who would cap off a 4-0 record against the Redbirds that year. Owning the Cardinals is going to become a Carlton calling card, with his most dominant stretch coming in 1980 when he went 6-0 versus the Birds. It is single-handedly the most dominating season a pitcher has ever had against the Cardinals outside of Howie Kamnitz, who went 7-0 in 1908. For the next decade and some change, Carlton is going to torment Gussie Bush and his Cardinals in agonizing fashion. In 1983, he struck out 12 cards in an 8-inning masterpiece to earn his 300th career win. He snuffed out late-season playoff hopes in 73 and 75. And that godlike season he had in 1972 for all the woes that the 59 and 97 Phillies had, they were above 500 against one team, and that was St. Louis. Casting aside those that pitched before the invention of penicillin, Steve Carlton is perhaps the greatest pain in the ass in the history of this franchise. And leading into 1982, 
currently held a 30-9 and record against the Cardinals to go along with three Cy Young awards. It's no surprise he's the one to end the streak, but the Cardinals did get him earlier. Lefty started 1982 with an 0-4 mark, and the Phillies bumbled out of the gate to a 6-13 April start. After dropping a three-game set to the Mets, the Phillies hauled their sorry asses to town where the Cardinals swept them in three. In game two, they thumped Carlton for five runs and five innings while Joaquin Andujar pitched a three-hit shutout. Everything is going right for the Cardinals, and besting Steve Carlton the Phillies is testament to... We don't really know. Luck, talent, depth. The Cardinals won their 11th and 12th games in Philadelphia. The next day, Carlton pitched into the 9th as the Phillies trounced the Redbirds 8-4. It seemed that Carlton casted a spell against his old team as the calendar rolled into May, as the Cards would go on to lose 5 of their next 6 games while the Phillies would win 7 of their next 10. It's a very impressive month even if Steve Carlton had to go and shit all over it. Contrary to popular opinion among Cardinals fans, April is in fact the worst month historically for this organization. It's true. By the slimmest of margins, it is. Since 1900, the Cardinals own a 51.2 win percent for the games played in late March and April, lower than May and June. 1,045 wins and 998 losses. April was a brutal month for this franchise starting out. And despite winning two World Series titles in the 20s and 30s, they didn't have a winning April record for the decade until the end of the 1940s. That's 40-plus years of bad starts. In recent memory, the Cardinals only got off to a good start a couple of times. They posted an 88-99 record in April for the 1970, and were in an even 133-133 for May. They had some good starts, honestly. They started 9-7 in 1970, but finished May 12 and 17. In 1971, they exited May 32-17, and in tremendous fashion, dropped 21 of their 29 June contests. In 1973, the roles were reversed, with the Redbirds ending April 3-15, but going 53-33 from May through July. Man, it's tough being a 1970s card. They weren't all that bad, just... I think they were close. If they played in today's game, they'd have made a postseason appearance or two. That horrible 1973 start nearly saw them win the NL East, and they were in it until the last couple of weeks in 71 and 74. But after that, nothing. Bob Gibson retired in 75, and Lou Brock would stick around to break the stolen base record before hanging up his cleats in 79. They had plenty of pieces there. Ted Simmons was slugging his way to the Hall of Fame. Keith Hernandez was a full-time loser. Keith Hernandez was a full-time piece by 76 and would win MVP three years later. Joe Torre hung around for six years, and Bob Forge would become a rotational mainstay for a decade. It's just... They pissed it all away. Not these players or coaches. Even a curmudgeon like Vern Ramp, they all wanted to win. No always the series. They traded away their future in two pitchers who won 529 combined games, one of them going to their in-division rival. They had should-be Hall of Famers in Reggie Smith and Dick Allen. Let them go. They finished the decade just 13 games below 500. A 10-year run more successful than the choir-led 1990s, but nothing to show for it. Those 90s teams, as bad as they were, came within a win of a World Series. 
Rebels are led by Mike Schmidt, Gary Carter, Dave Parker, and Willie Stark. And this team is led by Lonnie Smith. What a tremendous April, hosting an 877 LCS. Oh, and George Henry, who bashed a team leading four home runs. The only full-time starter that struggled at the plate was Tommy Hurd. Everyone else on the staff was hitting above league average. And the pitching mirrored a lot of what they had last year results-wise. It's just that now they have Bruce Suter, who already saved seven games. Newcomer Steve Murrah had a 2.52 ERA for four starts. And Joaquin Andujar wrapped up a five-start run that saw him average seven innings per outing en route to a team-leading 2.50 ERA. It was a bend, but don't break pitching staff. May starts out rough for the Cardinals as their aforementioned pitching bends a little too much with Bob Forsh and Steve Murrow only able to work at least six innings. They eventually right themselves and sweep the Cubs before welcoming the NL West leading Atlanta Braves into town for an early season LCS preview that ends with the Braves getting the best of them two games to one. Perhaps more concerning was the injury to David Green, the prized Nicaraguan rookie they poached off the Brewers. Green took a tumble when trying to avoid colliding with Braves pitcher Steve Bedrosian, a move that ends up tearing Green's hamstring and leading to him saying, if this were to happen again, he'd kill Bedrosian before I get hurt. Damn, okay. The main maladies begin to pile up. Green takes a seat and is soon followed by Tommy Herr and Gene Tennis, the latter of which broke his hand, diving back into first base. Herr and Bear had been battling walking pneumonia since the series with the Cubs. George Hendrick, who will play this entire season in pain, is battling elbow inflammation. It's also come to the attention of the baseball gods that Lonnie Smith is having too good of a start to the season, so he's quickly brought back down to earth with a sore heel, and just for good measure, a Lee Smith fastball to the elbow. The battered outfield paved the way for an early season call-up. Whitey has a few choices at his disposal, but he opts for a stringy outfielder he picked up in October for reliever Bob Sykes. He was entering his sixth season of professional baseball and didn't really start hitting until he turned 22 when he paced the AA Nashville Sounds with a 322 average, higher than the next guy on his team in Don Mattingly. Boy, we've heard of him before. Uh. <laughs> Not bad for a seventh rounder, but his route to the Yankees outfield was blocked by future Hall of Famer Reggie Jackson and Dave Winfield. Not to mention all-star Lou Pinella and former Cardinals Jerry Mumphrey. The Bronx Bombers simply had no place to put him, so they flipped their gangly seventh-rounder to the Cardinals for a relief pitcher that would never make an appearance for them at the MLB level. It was an impressive heist for Whitey Herzog, knowing damn well that his relief core would be stretched thin with an injury. Bob Sykes was, well, he was all right in his time with the Cardinals. Nothing spectacular. Despite being the team's player representative and union stalwart in the 81 strike, the 26-year-old left-hander was an expendable piece in the White Rats trade schemes. His departure brought in a guy who'd go on to win an MVP award, three gold gloves, and third-place finish in Rookie of the Year voting that season. That man is none other than Willie McGee. Whitey and GM Joe McDonald didn't think much of Willie as a big leaguer before the 82 season. Whitey went on record to say he was a good prospect, chance to be a major leaguer, needs more seasoning. But with injuries befalling the Cardinals left and right and McGee hitting 291 in Louisville, Willie would get his opportunities sooner rather than later. He didn't think he'd last long at the show, choosing to sleep in hotels for the time being. Ozzie Smith later approached him and basically said, Hey dude, I got this six-bedroom house and, you know, it's getting kind of lonely. 
you want to move in? And for two years, Willie ended up living with him. It was a kindness that Ozzy believed he should share with his teammates, especially rookie ball players. He had picked it up in San Diego. It wasn't uncommon for guys to pick up the tab. Arch nemesis Steve Carlson would buy bottles of Chardonnay to give his teammates and would always take his guys out to the best restaurants, a custom he picked up from Mike Shannon. Kindness begets kindness, and Ozzy's first experience with that came from none other than his current teammate, George Hendrick. In one of his first interactions as a Padre, Ozzy was treated to a meal from the big and stoic veteran. George Hendrick is going to have a lot written about him, and so will Steve Carlton. Both men took a vow of silence from the media after getting burned in the press. You can't help but notice the difference in how each would be treated. There was a name for Carlton's reticence, the Big Silence, a decade-long period where Big Steve wouldn't say a word to the press. He did it following a disastrous 1973 season that saw him lose 20 games and the Philadelphia reporters questioning his extravagant nightlife, mainly his love for drinking. Lefty saw his relationship with the press as a distraction, an obstacle to him understanding himself more. It was the core philosophy to Steve Carlton that he wanted to tap into my own mind to know what God knows. After games, he'd mostly leave the clubhouse under armed guard and other times would let his wife do the answering for him. With his career nearing the end, Carlton broke his silence and started giving interviews and the press couldn't get enough of him. George Hendrick, on the other hand, didn't get a cool title to him clamming up. Hendrick came up with the athletics and filled in for an injured Reggie Jackson in the 1973 postseason. He doesn't kick the hornet's nest too often, but a nasty rumor gets said that he was a problem in Oakland. I couldn't find anything saying he was. His owner, Charlie Finley, is certainly not someone known to be a reputable individual. And during this time, he was feuding with catcher Dave Duncan and pitcher Vita Blue. The Blue story is exceptionally funny as he paid the Cy Young winner a $63,000 salary. The next year, Vita regresses a little in the win-loss department, and Charlie wants to slash the salary to 50000 But under the CBA, he can't. Can't cut a player's salary by more than 20%, he learns. In his defense, the penny-pinching Finley claimed that $13,000 of blue salary was considered a bonus. Dave Duncan had been with the athletics organization for 10 years and was seeking fifty grand saying he wouldn't bargain a cent less because, in his words, he had been compromising for Finley for 10 years. Duncan was traded to Cleveland in the offseason, along with George Hendrick, to help clear up a clogged outfield. In 113 games, Hendrick smashed 21 homers, including three in a game against Billy Goddamn Martin's Detroit Tigers. It's in Cleveland that George takes his vow of silence, refusing to talk to the press. There's no real answer for it. Neither his managers in Cleveland, San Diego, or St. Louis offer a definitive reply to the question. A long time ago, rumored to be while he was in Oakland, some writer was exceptionally harsh on George. I spent a lot of time combing through newspaper clippings during George's career and can't find a specific article that I think could answer this, but whatever it was, George didn't like talking to the press. Not at all. He wasn't cruel about it. Tom Barnage learned that when Hendrick, a member of the Padres, stopped in for a series against St. Louis and the veteran reporter tried to get a word out of Silent George while he was eating some barbecue. George just smiled, finished his plate, and politely said he doesn't talk to guys like him. He later warmed up to the St. Louis press, even granting the late great Rick Hummel an exclusive interview in 1979, a promise he made to the commission when he came over to the Cardinals. The post-dispatch was the exception. His time in Cleveland and San Diego betrayed a man who was a troublemaker and a clubhouse nuisance. 
He had many nicknames by this time. None of them were good. The first instance occurred after Hendricks' mother passed away. The following season, Cleveland manager Ken Aspromonte, particularly upset over a week of bad play, when he gave his guys the day off. This pissed a lot of his players off. We were still trying to find housing at the start of the year, but what alienated George Hendrick from his manager was when he tacked on that no one was getting the day off, and I don't care if there's a death in your family. The figure of speech didn't sit well with George, who was quoted to say, I can't play for that man. And for the rest of Aspro's short tenure in Cleveland, Hendrick wouldn't run out some ground balls that others might. Aspro Monte fined him hundreds of dollars for it, but George didn't care. He was called Joggin' George for his effort and later Captain Easy. When Rick Hummel asked him about this, he said that he wasn't a hustler, but that he wasn't going to give 110% on a hard-hit ball he hit right at someone, especially when he's barely out of the batter's box. Sacrilege then, but definitely not unheard of now. He was a man ahead of his time in that regard, and in a lot of ways shared some of that same public strife as Gary Templeton. Cleveland brought in Frank Robinson, who made it his mission to get through to Hendrick. Local press thought of George as the next Robinson if he could tap into that potential and, I don't know, run out a couple more ground balls or some shit. Frank can't get through to George for whatever reason, and he's promptly shipped to San Diego in December of 76. He goes on to have his best season with a 3.11 average and a 5.8 B-war. Hell, the San Diego chapter of the Baseball Writers Association voted him as team MVP. They even invited him to their banquet to give him a award. George doesn't show up. No one can get a hold of him. He doesn't even give the Padres his home phone number. Instead, he rejects the award, saying that while he's flattered, it would be hypocritical of him to accept it. His effort and that of Dave Winfields are constantly called into question during his tenure with the Padres. He gets off to a horrible start in 1978 and was released. The Cardinals take a chance and pick him up where he breaks his clubhouse silence to tell the post-dispatch not to take his quietude personally and that some days he'll talk and other days he won't. He immediately prophesies the future by saying, nobody can tell me that we can't play with anybody in this division and make me believe it. This is a good team we are going to win. Even after a few interactions with the press, they still call him Silent George. He knew that when he chose his path of silence, he'd be lambasted for it, especially as a black man in America. Steve Carlton was shrouded in mystery. He had a special room built for him to practice karate and yoga and shit. George Hendrick just packed his lunch, went to work, clocked out, and went home to his family. He didn't need to say he was great and courageous to do his job. Nothing against those that do, but he was so greatly misunderstood as a human being. I don't think Rick Humble meant this when he wrote about their interview, but he comments on how thoughtful, cool, and well-spoken George Hendrick was. It's sort of an insult to refer to black people like that in conversation because usually what it means is that they sound more white than others. But I think Rick was trying to portray George as not the troublemaker and clubhouse rabble-rouser that others said he was, but as a very thoughtful and aware man who loved his family and teammates. The kindness of silent George Hendrick was on display in 1978 when he took Ozzy out for dinner, and it returned in the 81 offseason when he met up with the Wizard to talk about his trade. Ozzy wasn't sure about signing off on St. Louis, even though he hated San Diego. George told him that if he accepted the trade, it would be the greatest decision of his life. He said he loved St. Louis, and that Ozzy would love it too. Maybe this tipped the needle, maybe not. It meant enough to Ozzy to write about in his autobiography. 
maybe there's no Willie McGee without Ozzie Smith because maybe there's no Ozzie Smith without George Hendrick. It's some Cloud Atlas shit, I guess. But we mentioned throughout the series that Whitey Herzog was after a particular kind of player, and he had a really good one in George Hendrick. The rest of the series will have some statistical nonsense, but mainly anecdotes about this team. We feel that's important for you. Anyone can talk about stolen bases or total zone rating, but what we really want you to get out of this series is a deeper understanding of the people that play for some of our favorite teams. So here's one more George Hendrick story, and then back to your regular programming. There's a lot of good ball players and a lot of bad ball players out there. There are guys who are terrible human beings and gifted athletes, and there are others who are, well, just George Hendrick. I didn't know where to put this, but I think it's important and kind of cool for you to know this. George Hendrick didn't hate reporters. He just hated talking to them. When he signed an extension with the Cardinals, he sat at a press conference to tell the press he and the team had come to terms, to which a reporter quipped, well, I guess that's the end of the press conference then, which caused the whole room to burst out laughing, including George. Toward the end of his career, he's in Los Angeles for the Angels. One of his teammates is Reggie Jackson, and there's a reporter named Lisa Saxon. Saxon is a baseball reporting pioneer and the second woman to become a full-beat writer for MLB. She wrote for the LA Daily News and covered the Angels. She endured what you probably expect a woman would have during her time as a beat reporter. She was catcalled, belittled, sexually harassed, and on numerous occasions removed from the clubhouse by team security because she was a woman. That's it. Cool world. A lot of players treated her like shit, but none worse than Hall of Famer Reggie Jackson, who would stand naked in front of her when she tried to interview him. He would scream and throw shit and threaten to kick her ass. It was so bad that the LA Times asked him about it, to which he said, I don't mind some of them. I don't particularly like them, though, because they don't know what to ask. They don't know what to say. To which Reggie turns the asshole meter up to 11 and goes off on a tirade, saying that when women come into the clubhouse, his office, that he doesn't owe them nothing. And in his words, I don't owe you nothing except human courtesy. And also, when you come up to me and ask me something off the wall about my fucking work, and I bust my rear every day to be a professional in my work, and you don't know the fuck you're talking about, I don't want to deal with you. You don't deserve to deal with me. Not at the level I play the game. He is specifically talking about Lisa Saxon. Somewhere in Reggie Jackson's mind, he decided she was a threat to the game. He fought her because she represented change, and he was worried that this change might affect him too. After a particularly bad stretch of play, Lisa Saxon gets a call from her hotel phone. It is silent George Hendrick, and he tells her to come to teammate John Candelario's room. Lisa usually doesn't do this for players, but she senses the concern in George's voice, so she does. Hendrick and Candelario tell her they've had enough. And George tells her that the way Reggie had been treating her was unacceptable, and that they weren't going to stand around and let it happen anymore. He tells her that if Reggie messes with her again, he'd have to go through him to do it. Sure enough, the next day, Reggie Jackson makes a beeline to Lisa, but is stopped dead in his tracks by Candelaria and Hendricks, who promptly tell him to fuck off. An enraged Jackson smashes his hand against the wall in anger, a hand that would hamper him in the 86 ALCS. I guess if you have to take anything from this story, it's that in a world of Reggie Jackson's, just be a George Hendrick and don't smash your hand against the wall. Thanks to guys like Hendrick and Ozzy, this Cardinals team is a tight-knit group. 
They stamp out their early May slide with the sweep of the Cubs that featured three bombs from Hendricks. In the following series with the Reds, Willie McGee makes his debut, drawing a walk and stealing a base in a 5-1 Steve Murray gym. Willie gets his first career hit the next day in a 10-9 victory over the Braves, and my guy, that's right, Tito Landrum hits his first homer in over 200 plate appearances. After splitting a four-gamer against the Braves, the Cards travel to San Diego to have their first reunion with Gary Templeton. Tempe is mostly absent in the series. George Hendricks, Joaquin Andujar, Keith Hernandez, and Julio Gonzalez take time to come visit him. The Padres will come to appreciate Templeton in a way Cards fans could not, even retiring him into their Hall of Fame. He was never the same player after 1981, and aside from a solid 1985 campaign, Tempe would never see his average climb higher than 263 and would finish his 10 years with the Padres with a career 632 OPS as a hitter. But in the here and now, he's a lot more grounded in his game, and the natural surface provided at Jack Murphy Stadium is going to prolong his career, as mediocre as it might be. Gary's getting a paycheck, and he's got a great manager in Dick Williams, one of the guys Whitey tried to lure to managing the Cardinals squad. The Cardinals take 2 of 3 from the Padres, and Templeton goes 1 for 11 with an RBI. It's not a spectacular reunion. That will be in St. Louis at the end of the month. With all the injuries piling up, the Redbirds need this one. Otherwise, it would feel like a kick in the nuts. Oh, speaking of which, um, Gene Tennis gets hit in the nuts on a foul tip. Talk about buying me some peanuts and crackerjacks. It's truly an amazing sight as the big man squirms and punches the ground and later says he's been hitting the nuts a lot, but not as bad as that one. He stays in the game and hits a homer to break a nothing-nothing tie in the seventh. The next day, the Cardinals drop an extra inning affair 5-4 and lose tennis for good when he breaks his hand, diving back into first base. That pushes Glenn Brummer back into action, where he'll remain with the Redbirds the rest of the season. In his next six games, he's going to go on a tear, ripping eight hits and 21 plate appearances with six RBIs. Will McGee is also picking up the slack as he'll be slashing 378, 410, and 514 by the end of the month. This Cardinal team just doesn't run out of help. After dropping a series to the Dodgers, Friend of the pod and the late and great Rick Hummel noted that this team has only been able to play their opening day lineup in 10 of their first 42 games. They get a little relief when David Green returns and not just two hits, and Willie McGee can finally relax when he learns he's not being sent down. How could they? The Cardinals wrap up an 8-5 West Coast road trip by welcoming the Padres to Bush, where Gary Templeton is nearly booed out of the stadium. This was the homecoming that everyone in St. Louis is waiting for, and it certainly lived up to the Cardinals' expectations as they take 2 of 3 with Templeton, once again notching only one hit in 10 plate appearances. He laces an RBI double with a 4-2 win against Joaquin Andujar, but so far he's yet to silence his Cardinals haters. Tom Barnage noted that the boos against Templeton lasted sometimes 30 seconds after his name was called. It certainly seemed there was no love lost, as he said after Game 1, the fans are what I thought they'd be. I played here before, and there was no change. After a 10-run fourth inning against the Giants secures an 11-6 win, the Cardinals finish May 17-11, a good turnaround after that 1-6 slide following their 12-game win streak. They stand atop the NL East at 31-18 and 3.5 and games up on the New York Mets. However, the Cardinals are still limping through games when Whitey knows that he's running out of reinforcements. To make matters worse, the Redbirds aren't getting the kind of production they'd expect from young starters John Martin and Andy Rincon, with the latter earning a one-way ticket to Louisville. Replacing Rincon in the rotation was 6'2 right-hander John Stuper. 
While his strikeout numbers didn't show it, Stuper was said to possess a very powerful fastball that sat in the mid-90s. He was drafted in the 18th round by the Pirates, who happily sent him to the Cardinals for Tommy Sant in 1979. Stoop was dominant in the minors in 1980, enough to earn a spring training invite. However, he overworked his powerful arm, and maybe a little too much when he pitched the winner in the Mexican League. After a disappointing spring, he saw his return to Louisville. He posted an abysmal 6-14 mark with a 4.92 ERA. He spent the 81 offseason working out and resting his arm and began 82 as a man possessed, pitching himself to a 7-1 record with a 1.46 ERA in 61 and two-thirds innings. He was the cream of the crop that year, as outside of Ricky Horton, he'd be the only AAA starter to have a career past 1982. When he wins his first game later that month, he comments that he wishes his dad were still there to see him do this. Let's pause a second to reflect on this May run a bit. Let's go back to our old friend, the Grand Cardinal Almanac, to see how the Redbirds typically fared in May. They're, uh, they're, they're fine, to say the least. May is the fourth best or third worst month, depending on your level of positivity. For the first 20 years of existence, the Cardinals went 213 and 283, posting only five winning records for the month. It became one of their stronger months by the end of the 1920s before slowly coming back down the earth in the 1960s. The only month they finished sub-500 for the decade before playing even baseball in the 70s. In recent memory, the Redbirds owned a 351-291 May record since 2000. Whitey finishes May 17-11 and expands their divisional lead to three and a half games. The Cardinals are off to their best start in 10 years, but the rest of the league has caught up. They slumped to 11th in MLB and OPS for the month, but maintained their place at the top of the 280 average. It's another impressive feat when you consider that 11 players got at least 40 plate appearances. Willie McKee has a 158 OPS plus early in his career. George Hendrick increased his season home run total to 9. And Lonnie Smith is still being awesome. Even guys like Ken Obergfell and Dane Orge, who aren't necessarily beating the shit out of the ball or hitting around 300, Something that is killing the Cardinals so far is base running, a part of their game that is really going to bite them in the ass during June. They are 61 for 89 in stolen bases, and May was excruciating as they were caught stealing 18 of their 50 tries. It's an aggression that Whiting and his team had bought into, usually paying off for them, but also meant they would have games where they would run themselves out of an inning. When bad base running wasn't doing them in, their offense would also just take the day off as evident in 15 of their 49 games where they scored two or fewer runs. Luckily for them, their elastic pitching staff maintains its league position as, well, okay to say the least. Through their first two months, they've been able to stab off any potential comebacks and close out close games with their 11-5 record and one-run ball games. Bruce Suter ran into some trouble after pitching almost 20 innings for the month, but finished with seven saves, and relievers Doug Bear and Dave LaPointe posted ERAs in low twos. The rotational fixture in Andujar again averages seven innings per start for the month and sees his season ERA sit at 2.64. And while there's not much advanced data on defense for this time, the pitching staff can thank the spacious confines of Bush Stadium and the revitalized middle infield for having them post a batting average much lower than their batting average on balls in play. In baseball nerd speak, the Cardinals' defense is turning what should be a 286 hitter into a 269 one. It's in June that all the Cardinals' good fortune seems to run out, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. And what will become a running trend of Cardinal starters getting no-run support, John Stuper pitches eight innings of three-run ball 
as the Redbirds lose the Giants in extra innings. Duarte doesn't help things when he sends down struggling left-hander John Martin to make room for Daryl Porter after his stint on the IL ends. The Cardinals are now carrying nine pitchers on their staff and with a 28-game schedule for the month. Whitey points out that the team has some off dates, but his experiment lasts less than a week when Steve Braun hits the IL, prompting the promotion of rookie submariner Jeff Keener. Keener is overjoyed to get called up to the show. He flies out to Montreal and gets checked into the hotel, realizes he's running short on time, and dashes to the ballpark. He gets to the visitor's clubhouse and realizes he doesn't have any of his equipment. It's all back at the hotel. He's bailed out by his teammates Mark Littell and Bob Forrest, who loan him an undershirt and an old glove, and Lonnie Smith finds him an old pair of shoes. He's so embarrassed, he tells equipment manager Butch Yachtman that he'll buy replacements for all his stuff, but he's quickly told not to worry about it. The Cardinals can afford it. Keener makes his first appearance in a 5-4 extra innings win that saw Whitey Boy deployed to the nth degree. In the top of the seventh with an out, and Tommy Herrett third base, Mike Ramsey lays down a perfect suicide squeeze to score the tying run. Five innings later in the top of the twelfth, Willie McGee triples home Ozzie Smith to make the score 4-3, to with Ken Obergfell stepping to the dish. Obie's having a terrible game, earning a golden sombrero in his five plate appearances so far. He gets the sign from the dugout and, despite the four strikeouts to his name, locks in for his chance of redemption. On the first pitch, he drops down his own suicide squeeze that nets the Redbirds the fifth and decisive run. The Cardinals drop the rubber match the next day to slide to 34-23. and 23. Their lead in the NL East is now down to two and a half games. So far, they have kept the powerful Expos and the Phillies at bay, but are starting to cede ground. Yeah, I know. It's still early in the season, but the Phillies have gone 24-14 and 14 since their woeful April and the Expos have some momentum after taking two of three from the Cards. The Pirates aren't bad either. They got off to a slow start, but are edging closer to 500. It helps that they're third in the NL and homeless behind only the Braves and Expos. Even those upstart Mets are a game over 500. It's still anybody's ballgame, pun intended. The Cardinals are not going to run away with this division. At least, not this season. Speaking of which, let's check in on these Cardinals and look at some numbers. Um, Computer, show me pitching stats for all 26 MLB teams, 57 games into their season. Thank you. The Cardinals don't strike anyone out. They rank second to last in all of Major League Baseball in that. In fact, they haven't struck out double-digit hitters once this season. They don't walk too many guys at least, ranking sixth among the senior circuit. Their 3.71 ERA is middle of the road at 15th, and honestly, it'd probably be a lot worse if not for Ozzie Smith, which shows because their 17 unearned runs allowed is tied for third. This pitching staff ain't great, but they're hanging in there. Barely. Let's check that offense. The Cardinals rank tied second to last in home runs. By the time they wrap up a four-game series against the Cubs at the end of the month, they'll have hit five home runs since May 19th. That's five ding-dongs in a 37-game span. But right now, 57 games in, their paltry 28-round trippers have been more than doubled by the league-leading Milwaukee Brewers, the same team that Whitey sent all that veteran talent to in the offseason. The Cardinals' saving grace is that they get a lot of hits. 
Their 529 hits places them sixth in MLB and second in the NL. And despite their June swoon starting to kick in, they're right in the middle of the pack in total bases, thanks in large part to their NL leading 20 triples. They're just hanging in there, but starting to slip. So games featuring multiple suicide squeezes are not acts of desperation, but ones of survival for this Cardinal team. 57 games in, and they're second in the league in stolen bases behind the Athletics. And their 20-sack flies place them third in the NL behind only the Dodgers and Pirates. Creating runs for the Whitey-led Cardinals required multiple hits and aggressive base running, and limiting runs meant great defense and superlative late-game management. It's during June that the Cardinals lose their way, and in all of those departments. Following that series against Montreal, the 82 Cardinals play 500 ball against the Mets and Expos. Whitey decides to carry four catchers once Daryl Porter is healthy, and inexplicable move if he did that today, right? To make room to carry all those backstops, he sends down top prospect David Green, despite his 325 average and plus-plus speed. The Cardinals would have played above 500 if closer Bruce Suter didn't have the worst month of his career at that point. Suter is on a roller coaster from hell, en route to a 6.11 ERA and a 3-4 record. He blew a lead against the Dodgers earlier in the month, and after four scoreless innings came completely undone against the Mets in a five-run implosion. He comes back three games and two days later where he again loses his shit. It's enough of a setback that Whitey gives him a couple days off, and a couple weeks later gives him extended time to recoup what is clearly an exhausted arm. During that series with the Expos, Ozzie Smith got duped by the hidden ball trick. During Suter's second-blown save to the Mets, the Cardinals' defense and base running didn't bother showing up. George Hendrick miffed a fly ball, Willie McGee got picked off twice, and Mike Ramsey was gunned down trying to score. A couple days later, Lonnie Smith makes a base running error when he tries to score on it inside the park, forgetting that starting pitcher Dave LaPointe is running in front of him, resulting in LaPointe scoring, but not Lonnie. Third base coach Chuck Hiller said that if LaPointe hadn't been in front of him, Lonnie could have made five bases. Things looked to be on the mend despite that Lonnie Smith miscue, with the Cardinals taking the first two in a four-game set against the Phillies. But the 33-32 and 32 Phils hold the players' meeting to get their shit together, which they immediately display by winning those last two games by a combined score of 17-3. In a 10-2 routing, Steve Carlton pitches a complete game and strikes out six. The Phillies would wrap off eight wins in a row. The red-hot Expos catch the cards following their Phillies' folly, and for the first time in over two months, the 1982 Cardinals are not sole possessors of first place. Whatever the Phillies said to get them going must have put a hex on the Redbirds' bats, who will completely disappear for the next two weeks. Despite second baseman Tommy Herr returning from a quadriceps injury, the duct tape intact Cardinals drop a 5-3 decision to a 38-year-old Fergie Jenkins in the Cubs. Whitey holds a meeting after the game and tells them to keep their chins up, saying, I can't do anything. I can't chew anybody's butts out. They're all trying. They bounce back to win games two and three, but another base running fiasco, this time committed by part-time male model and playboy Tito Landrum, and four errors sink their chance at the series win. Since June 22nd, the Cardinals' offense has only mustered 16 runs through six games. Those offensive woes would continue when they travel to Philadelphia for a three-game set to end the month. The Phillies ride their seven-game streak to eight games after Steve Carlton outduels Steve Mira in a one-nothing shutout victory. The Cards fall to 42-33 and find themselves tied with the Phillies for first place. 
The latest victim of bad baseball is Tommy Herr, who gets picked off by Carlton on a 3-0 count. Carlton becomes the NL's first 10-game winner despite losing his first four decisions. The Redbird offense is on life support, with George Hendrick, Willie McGee, Ozzie Smith, and Mike Ramsey all mired in slumps. Hendrick feels it the worst, being 11 for his last 68. He gets a tremendous boost of confidence when the Cardinals' bats wake up from their slumber to throttle Dick Ruthven en route to a 15-3 victory. Silent George blasts a grand slam and drives in seven runs. When asked about his big day, Silent George offers the same no-comment reply, this time through a smile. Keith Hernandez also goes yard with a three-run homer, marking the first time since May 5th that the Cards hit multiple homers in a game. These good vibes are short-lived, as they drop the rubber match 6-3 and finally, thankfully, end a terrible, no good, very bad June at 12-16, and 16, scoring less than 100 runs. It's the kind of June that the Cardinals fans of today can relate to. The 2023 team went 8 and 15 in June and 2 years prior endured a 10 and 17 mark that required a historic winning streak to squeak into the postseason. The Cardinals haven't enjoyed a winning decade of June since the 2000s, but prior to that, the organization found a lot of success for the month. Except for a disastrous 1971 showing, the Cardinals entered 82 highly competitive for the month. They ended the 70s two games over 500 for June and in the decade prior won 20 games twice. Not this time. Despite the pitching getting better, the 82 Cardinals can't buy a run for their beleaguered staff. Only four Cardinal regulars finished June with an OPS north of 700. The most prominent strugglers are George Hendrick, who posted a 642 mark, and Ozzie Smith, who has since seen his hot April where he hit 306 all but completely evaporate the last two months. Swiss Army man Mike Ramsey is perhaps feeling the stress of everyday playing time as he hits 224. The Cardinals hit six home runs for the entire month, six, and scored 98 runs. What's sort of incredible is that we expected that subpar scoring effort to rank near the bottom of all-time worst months to that point, but the 82 team was bailed out by numerous monthly follies by the 1970s teams who scored runs at a premium. Despite doing everything they can, whether that's through multiple suicide squeezes, having Bruce Suter taking a bat and get a sack fly, or stealing 41 bases in a month, they run themselves out of numerous games. Their 19 caught stealings leads all of MLB for June, and their 339 total bases lands them in the bottom third of the majors. The only good thing they have going for them is that their pitching kept them in way more games than they should have been in. Jeff Keener and Jim Cott provide much-needed aid for a bullpen that's seen Bruce Suter have the worst month of his career. John Stuber has been a godsend eating innings that would have gone to Rincon or Martin, the former of which struggling mightily in AAA. Team Clown and veteran presence Mark Littell post an ERA north of six and is designated for assignment, with Whiting looking to turn his longtime stopper into a starting pitcher. That experiment lasts only one start in three innings before Littell's twice-operated pitching elbow explodes for the final time ending his career. The Birds struggle to get consistently good innings out of Fortune Murrah, the latter having completely fallen off since his solid April. The only positive mainstay on the staff is, once again, Joaquin Andujar, who averages nearly eight innings per start and posts a sub-2 ERA. This is the perfect time to introduce you to Joaquin Andohar, who is going to have a fantastic four-year run with the Cardinals. You probably know that he's a two-time 20-game winner and a top-five Cy Young candidate. 
You may also know that after coming into Game 7 of the 85 World Series, he was ejected by home plate umpire Don Dankinger over something that totally didn't matter, we're sure of, and following that ejection, tore apart the visiting locker room. After his tirade, he sat with Whitey, who was also ejected, and both shared a Budweiser. Whitey did that with a lot of players. He liked them, but he really liked Goomba. Andujar had a live arm that could sit in the high 90s, and he developed that arm growing up in the Dominican Republic. He grew up with nothing, like a lot of kids during that time, playing baseball with a wadded-up socks and tree limbs. He quit school at 15 to play professional ball because he had no clothes or underwear. Throughout his early professional life, he survived on french fries and hot dogs until he learned enough English to order a more balanced diet. He was discovered then by Cardinals pitching coach Hub Kittle when he was a coach for the Astros Dominican team. Kittle bonded with all his players, but particularly with Andujar, who told the Post-Dispatch how much it meant to him that Hub was fluent in Spanish. Kittle couldn't get the Astros to bite just yet, so he put in a good word with the Reds who signed Andujar in 1970. But Joaquin required a certain approach from coaches, and it didn't help his development much when he found his minor league manager to be a very hard-nosed Vern Rapp. Rapp would eventually move over to the Cards organization, and after about six years between AA and AAA, he got moved to the Astros where he broke out in his age 23 season. His manager in Houston was Bill Verdon, a very respected statesman to the game and close friend of Whitey's. Verdon would oversee an Astros rebuild that would culminate in back-to-back Game 5 losses to the Phillies and Dodgers. He's going to lose his job this year, but Bill deserves a lot of credit for getting the Astros through their first ever playoff series since the franchise was founded in 1962. If things were different in 1980 or 81, maybe a good bounce here or there or not choking a 5-2 lead against the Phillies in the eighth inning, Vernon might have been managing the Astros a hell of a lot longer than he did. With that being said, Joaquin Andahar really didn't give a shit about all that and just wanted to pitch. He drove Vernon crazy so much that the press was labeling him as a troublemaker. He told him he doesn't cause trouble, that he just wanted to play. During his time in Houston, Andujar is going to make two all-star teams, despite being the team's back-end starter. He's overshadowed by the generationally gifted J.R. Richard, future Cy Young runner-up Joe Necro, and eventually Nolan Ryan. Oh, even Bob Force's brother is blocking him from taking on a larger workload. If you use advanced stats, you'll find that Verdon sort of had a point by limiting Joaquin starts and using him out of the pen from time to time. ERA Plus is a fantastic stat that tries to take into account a pitcher's ERA based on numerous factors such as time period, stadium, and quality of opponent. 100 is considered average, so anything that is over that is good, and anything below that is not so good. Andrew Hart's ERA Plus from 1976 to 1980 was 94, meaning he was about 6% below league average. His counting stats weren't too bad. He went 42 and 49 during that span with a 3.6 ERA and he was fantastic at limiting home runs, but Joaquin struggled mightily with his command, walking over 10% of the batters he faced during that time. When you compare that to the other guys on the staff who either limited free passes to a minimum or struck out a shit ton of batters, you can see why Bill Verdon chose to be more tactical in starting his tenacious Dominican right-hander. Verdon eventually has it up to the gills with Joaquin's antics, which usually involves shouting matches in his office. One day, Whitey gets a call from Astros GM Al Rosen asking him if he could take Andujar off his hands. Whitey gets on the phone and calls Bill, who tells him he's a headache, that Joaquin has a screw loose. He tells the White Rat that Andujar's problem is that he wants to pitch every day. Whitey's sort of perplexed by it. He writes about how the hell could anyone see that as a problem. 
He told Vernon that he could live with that and sent Tony Scott to finish the trade. He understood Anderhart's frustrations. The guy just wanted some consistency. So at the end of every start, Whitey would go to the mound, pull his pitcher, and say something like, Good job, Joaquin. You're pitching Tuesday. After the 1981 season, Anderhart entered the free agency draft and almost left. He was left off promotional materials all the way up to spring training, but he signed back and was ready to go. Anderhart was also reunited with Hub Kittle. He was mercilessly teased about this by his teammates, who referred to Hub as Joaquin's daddy. But the ribbing didn't bother either man too much, and I'm sure Hub Kittle felt endeared by the term. He was always in Joaquin's corner, and after the trade said that he has a golden arm, they said he had a million-dollar arm and a ten-cent head. But that's not true. He's a very intelligent person. This wouldn't be a worse fans production if we didn't point out that Joaquin Andohar is all those things. He's gifted, incredibly durable, and smart. But above all, he's also very fucking weird. To begin, he would sometimes refer to himself in the third person. Not all the time, just whenever. It's kind of like his whole vibe is a baseball. There's no strategy to it. He just does what he's got. with some 4D level chess. He was certain that Bill Lasky was going to throw him a slide. He was adamant too, saying he wasn't going to strike me out with a slide. No way! When after there's any strategy to switch the game, Joaquin said no, and he just does it some other time. You know, when he feels like it. In May, he was pulled out of 74 The reason why? He against himself.
With the division lead completely wiped out, the Cardinals entered July tied with the Phillies, who spent May and June going a combined 36-20. and 20. The Expos are right on their heels as well, sitting a half game back as the calendar turns over. The Redbirds need to shift some of that momentum away from their division counterparts, but do themselves no favors as they blow off both feet, dropping their first two games. Luck is just not on their side, and neither are the umpires, as Billy Williams, also, that's not Billy D. Williams, Lando Calrissian was not calling balls and strikes, uh, misses a blatant call at first and nullified a Cardinals run, a run that would serve as a difference in a 4-3 loss. The next day, Andujar pitches his fourth complete game of the year and lowers his season ERA to 2.27. But the Redbirds could only muster a single run and squander a chance to bail out their ace after a Keith Hernandez lineout double play. To sum up Hernandez's comments after the game, the frustration is mounting and it is about to boil over. At this point in the season, if the Cardinals can enter the All-Star break within scratching distance, it would be a huge moral victory. A lot of guys are still in the struggle bus or getting on the injury bus, while some guys are just getting off. Bruce Suter missed the last week of June and half of the first week of July with a strained groin. After pitching the worst month of his career, he asked personal friend and pitching coach Mike Rourke to come help him out. He says, Brucey, you overthrow and you split it too much. And catcher Gene Tennis says you should throw your four-seam more. Suter, the consummate professional, gets all that he can behind his 87-mile-per-hour fastball and readjusts how he throws his out pitch that will one day land him in Cooperstown. On July 4th, he comes back for a save. A few days later, though, his spikes get caught while warming up and he pulls an abductor in his leg, an injury that will sideline him past the All-Star break, meaning the Cardinals staff is going to have to pick up the slack, which they do with both Doug Bear and Jim Cott recording three saves. Steve Murrow was also on the struggle bus for over a month. He hadn't recorded a win since May 26th, a stretch that saw him lose four decisions and give up 21 runs through 33 innings. Last year, Murrow was the league leader in losses, and this season has been playing with a chip on his shoulder, knowing that he's better than what his record shows. He tosses a complete game against the Reds that leaves manager John McNamara beside himself, saying, How the hell do I know if Murrow's that good? The Cardinals will split a two-gamer with the Braves and drop two of three to the Astros, including an agonizing Jose Cruz walk-off home run against Bob Forsh, who may have stayed in for a couple batters too many. The Cardinals go 5-5 five and five to start July and enter the Midsummer Classic in a percentage point tie with the Phillies. They call up a new weird guy in Jeff Lottie who channels his inner hour Bosky as he skulks around the mound in between pitches. But what he's more known for is the adrenaline rush he got in his first game, when after recording an out from Keith Hernandez, he failed to go around the horn, instead launching the ball so deep it bounced off the center field wall. Is that fucking true? <laughs> then there's Joaquin Andahar, who has a hectic two days. Beginning July 8th, when he's ejected from the game for hitting Braves' Bob Horner on the neck, Horner would tell the press he didn't think the pitch was intentional, and Joaquin swore up and down that he didn't mean to. But that didn't matter in the eyes of home plate umpire Lanny Harris, who gave him the heave-ho. Maybe he was upset that he couldn't pitch into the seventh inning for the seventh straight game, or that after his departure, the Cardinal offense couldn't get him off to Schneid, dropping his record to seven wins and seven losses. Lucky numbers aside, Joaquin Swansong would come the following day after he learned that he didn't make the NL All-Star team. There was no pitcher more deserving in 1982 than Joaquin Andujar. He really, really pitched his dick off. He'll finish the season fourth among NL pitchers in B-War and top five in innings pitched, 
walks per nine, and ERA. Even after his June 8th ejection, he sat fortified at the top in innings pitched and games started, and second in the league in shutouts and ERA, with only Steve Rogers ahead of him in the latter. Unfortunately, those basic peripherals aren't enough to sway NL manager Tommy Lasorda, who doesn't even consider him for a spot. Not even after Bruce Suter's injury freed up a spot on the roster, electing to instead go with the Reds reliever Tommy Hume. Joaquin is a very proud and loyal guy. In 1983, the Cardinals are going to fall in disarray, finishing fourth in the NL East in four games under 500. There are a ton of factors to consider, but one of them is the team's drug abuse problems from star players Lonnie Smith, Keith Hernandez, and Andujar. Ozzie recalled the Ryan Sandberg game as the point he knew that it wasn't the Cardinals' year. Lonnie left the team to go to rehab, Hernandez was traded to the Mets, and Joaquin finished 6-16 six with an ERA north of 4. Why'd he even contemplate a retirement? But everyone came back in some form. Lonnie rebuilt his image and had arguably the greatest season of the 1980s. Keith Hernandez won another World Series in 86 and got to be in all those Just for Men commercials. Whitey took the Birds to two more World Series and made the Hall of Fame, and Andujar put that awful 1983 behind him and won 41 games in the next two seasons, his last with the Cardinals. He said if he could, he'd pitch the next 25 or 100 years of his life for Whitey because, quote, he's the one who gave me the chance to pitch. Hearing his name not even considered was a sign of disrespect, a sentiment he would echo again in 1985 toward Dick Williams. Joaquin holds nothing back against Tommy Lasorda. He initially took his all-star snub on the chin, saying he didn't care that much about it, and that, I want to win for the Cardinals. I don't give a shit about the all-star team. But this is Joaquin Andohar we're talking about, a guy so weird and on-brand for his time that he quickly shifts gears into blatantly attacking Lasorda. Getting snubbed was an injustice, which Joaquin quickly points out saying, quote, It should be the best pitchers. I want Tom Lasorda to know there's only one pitcher who should go ahead of me, and that's Steve Rogers. I don't have a lot of wins, but I can't help it. He has to realize what the best people have been doing. He says that the All-Star game is all about faces, and not about the best players. He says Lasorda, quote, don't have any class. And to cap off his tirade, he declares, never in my life am I going to an All-Star game. I know I'm going to make it every year. Dumb son of a bitch, you got to have a pretty face. His teammates have his back. Keith Hernandez compared it to his 77 season, and Dane Lorg said he and the offense were to blame. Andujar would play six more seasons in the majors following 1982, and despite earning selections in 84 and 85, would keep his promise of never attending an All-Star game again. In 1984, he won 20 games and led the league in innings. He was selected to the roster but couldn't attend because he had to return home to the DR to see his ailing grandfather, the one who got him into baseball. In 85, he had 15 wins, the most in baseball, but pulled out after manager Dick Williams said he may start Lamar Hoyt instead. He'd never really get another legitimate shot. After 85, Whitey shipped him to Oakland, and after three mostly broken seasons, he retired. That's Joaquin, man. A man of unbridled chaos and loyalty, principled until the end. One tough Dominican. Entering the All-Star break, the St. Louis Cardinals are treading water. The worst feels like it's over. 
After enduring a months-long injury swoon, Whitey Herzog's Cardinals are right where they ought to be. Their incredible start to the season propelled them into first place, a spot they held until late June, and their depth kept them from falling out even when things were at their bleakest. They were on the up and up with reinforcements and rest on the way. They had survived. In a lot of ways, it's a flawed but promising season. Experts felt the cards would be near here, mainly trailing the Expos and just ahead of the Phillies. They did a lot of bending but never broke. Their 37 home runs in the year have nestled them at the bottom of MLB, and they sat middle of the pack and run scored. The biggest question mark at the beginning of the season, the pitching, was a roller coaster, but it had come to produce dependable innings. Despite their standing, they still have one tremendous obstacle to overcome in the Phillies, a franchise who had owned the Cardinals and the NLEs for the better part of a decade. They had Steve Carlton to wrestle with, a man so focused on besting them that he's been a guaranteed win for the Fightins when they play the Redbirds. In the American League, a crowded playoff race had emerged between old kings and newcomers. The AL West featured the Royals, Angels, and White Sox locked in a dead heat, with the plucky Seattle Mariners sitting four games back in their best start in franchise history. In the AL East, Earl Weaver's Orioles, the old guard of the AL, were battling the upstart Boston Red Sox, but above them sat one foe that would separate themselves from the pack, a team that had already hit over 130 home runs and posted one of the most fearsome lineups in Major League Baseball. Against the backdrop of the season, the world at large spins round and round under liberal capitalism. The early 1980s had become a battleground. Wars dominate the headlines as a fascistic military junta in Argentina invades the Falkland Islands and later as authoritarian Israel invades Lebanon. The Soviet Union and the United States supplying armed various factions killing one another and in the shadow of that begin talks to reduce the chance of nuclear holocaust by decimal points. America has begun to climb from over a decade of economic regression, or at least has pretended to, as cities like St. Louis struggle to provide housing and education amid Ronald Reagan's entitlement cuts. Across the river in Illinois, feminists wage a battle with their Republican governor over the Equal Rights Amendment, and in Latin America, Sandinistas and guerrillas clash against American hegemony. But that's an episode for another day. As the Cardinals left the All-Star break, they were matched by the complete opposite in the American. A team that used overwhelming firepower to beat their opponents. A team that had come so close in years prior to get here. And a team the Cardinals have spent the past two off-seasons strengthening to be the monsters of the American League as they were.